Y'all be seated. It is, uh, once again, it's good to be here with you, whether you're live uh, in person or live online, or maybe those who may uh, watch or listen to the service and uh, worship with us later on. Uh, we've learned a new word over the last few years, asynchronously. If you're a school teacher, you know what that means, uh, but we have also had to deal with that here in the church. There are a lot of things that we deal with in church life. Uh, this week, I have uh, been overly enamored the last few days with a new appliance that we have in the church. Our water fountain out here has been out uh, for a long time. It was giving us trouble a couple years ago, and then, then we... Uh, had the remodel done and, and it just quit working right. And then COVID, we unplugged it because we were told you were supposed to unplug it because you could get, I don't know, COVID from the water fountain. I, whatever. It, it, at that point, the thing wasn't working right anyway. But anyway, Sunlight, who is a homeschool co-op that meets here on Wednesdays, purchased uh, for our church a new uh, water fountain. And I asked them if they would go ahead and spend a little bit of extra money and get one that had the water bottle filling station on it. And I love that thing. <laughs> I love that thing. You can go out there and you just stick a, a, a cup or a bottle right in front of that. It fills your bottle up with, uh, with cold water and, and you know, it, you don't have to go around with those little plastic bottles. I, I love it. I, I probably love it too much. In fact, I know it has a counter on it. Now, how many times it's been used? Well, they used it. It, it had a three on it when they got done installing it and testing it. I've used it five times, and the counter's only up to 10. So I don't know if anybody else likes the thing or not, but apparently I absolutely love that thing. You know, there's a lot, we deal with, in the church, we have to have a finance committee. We have to deal with budgets, and we have to deal with finances. This coming weekend, we're having a deacon retreat to help train our deacons, and, and uh, so there's all kinds of things going to that. You know, you're having to schedule with the, with the camp, and you're having to make plans. We have to figure out where we're going to eat our barbecue on the way out there, whether we're going to eat it. Now, these are important decisions that have to be made to keep the church running well, right? So that everything stays going smoothly. All of those things are, abs are, are worth zero if we don't get one thing right. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Whether you like it hot or cold in here, right? We, we bumped the, the heaters up because I think they got set too low somehow. Uh, whether you like it loud or quiet, whether you like uh, contemporary music or, or, or hymns or, or Gregorian chants, whether you like a lot of scripture reading in the service or less scripture reading in the service, regardless of all of those things, there's something that if we don't get this right, we might as well shut the doors because we're not functioning as the church as Christ would have us to. J.D. Greer, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention for a period of time, put it this way. He said, the gospel is more important than our programs. The gospel is more important than our preferences. The gospel is more important than our priorities. The gospel is more important than our politics. The gospel is more important than our blank. And you can fill that blank in with whatever you want to put in that blank. Because as the church of Jesus Christ, 
The gospel is more important. In Galatians chapter 1, as we begin this walk through the book of Galatians, this will be our third week in the book of Galatians, we're going to finish out chapter 1. The first couple of weeks, we took five verses at a time. Today, we're going to take 14 verses. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, Paul is in the midst of mounting a defense for the gospel that he is preaching. Because he had preached the pure, unadulterated gospel to the Galatian churches on his first missionary journey as he traveled throughout Galatia and, and, and actually preached at many of those churches, planted the churches, went back through many of those churches, establishing them, uh, encouraging them, building them up, preaching the truth of Jesus Christ who had died for their sins, who rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and had ascended to the right hand of the throne in heaven. He had preached that gospel clearly and succinctly, and he had told them that if they would put their faith and trust in the risen, the crucified and risen Christ, they could be saved. They could be set free from sin. They could be set free from, from uh, the wages of sin, which is death. They could gain eternal life in Christ and in Christ alone. There had been some other apostles, apparently other prophets who had come along behind him and begun to preach a different gospel. Paul dealt with that in what we looked at two weeks ago in verses 6 through 10. And he basically said there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. There's nothing else that matters. And so he then, in verse 11, begins kind of a defense of that gospel and how the gospel came to him, how he received the gospel, trying to help them understand that this is not something I made up. This is not just a philosophy. This is not just some type of, of new twist on an old theology. This is the truth of God that he is set to reveal from the beginning of time and has fulfilled that in Christ. Read with me Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. The scripture says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but I, it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. After three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declared in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul, in his defense of the gospel here, reaches back and tells his story of his salvation experience, at least 
an overview of it uh, a little bit differently than what Luke did. Now, I want to remind you that this, this morning, if you were in your growth group, you studied uh, this story from Luke's perspective in the book of Acts. You looked at Acts chapter 7, the end of Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion. And as you studied that, you're seeing that from Luke's perspective. Now, remember, Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul extensively. Much of the book of Acts is written in first person, plural, where Luke is writing it and he says, we went here, we went there, we did this. Not all of Acts is first person, plural, because some of it uh, Luke wrote as it was reported back to him, where Paul, he'll write, Paul and his companions did so-and-so and then joined us. And so if you read Acts carefully, you'll, you'll realize that, that Luke was traveling with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And so... As, as you study this, you, you can kind of put together uh, what you read in Acts with Paul's uh, testimony here of, of, of kind of a big overview of, of what happened early in his life. So Paul emphasizes a handful of things about the gospel, and this is the focus today is going to be on the gospel itself. The first thing that Paul emphasizes is that the gospel is from God. The gospel originated with God the Father. First of all, the gospel is rooted in the nature of God. Paul says in verse 11 that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. It didn't come out of man's mind. It didn't come out of man's heart. It came from the throne room of God. The gospel, the good news, the, the, the story of, of God's love for us expressed in his son whom he sent to walk on this earth, die on the cross, be resurrected, ascend to heaven, and the promise of his second coming, that gospel, that story, that truth is not of human origin. It is from God. I don't have time to expand in all of it, but Charles Spurgeon does a great job just fleshing out an entire sermon on that phrase, that this is not of God. If it were of God, uh, if it were not of God, if it were just of human strength or human theology, it would long since be gone. It would be dead. People would not have given their lives for the gospel if it were not of God's origin. It would not have lasted the test of time if it were not, if it had not originated with God. But it is rooted in the nature of God. We're going to be studying at the end of this year, 1 John. And in 1 John, he focuses on the, this truth that God is love. And we will learn that at the very core, out of, out of all of who God is, God is, uh, God is a lot of things. God is holy. God is just. God, God is, is magnificent. But God is love. And the gospel, the desire to redeem those whom he created in his image is rooted in his very nature. That's why the gospel comes out of the heart of God. The gospel originates with God. It is not of human origin. So Paul is saying, what I'm preaching is not, not something that I preach for my own benefit. I'm not preaching it because it comes from me. It wasn't an idea I came up with. It wasn't even an idea that other men came up with. It originated with God himself. God is the one who made the decision to send his son to die. Second thing that I want you to see here is that Paul, and, and, and we've got to see this from the overall picture of this text. The gospel has been revealed through God's revelation since the fall. 
From the time of Adam and Eve, God made them a promise that I will send someone who will crush the head of the serpent. He made a promise that he was going to send a Messiah, that he was going to send a Savior. And as you walk through the Old Testament, you see pictures time and again, images, prophecies, uh, types, where God gives us an image through the sacrifices of what that final perfect sacrifice is going to look like in Christ. And so the entire Old Testament is an ongoing progressive form of revelation that ultimately culminates in the person of Christ. But the reason that I, I want you to see that here is because the Apostle Paul says this. Now, remember what Bible the Apostle Paul had. I want to dig in for just a second. Paul says that when, when he saw the light, let me put a plug in for the growth groups this morning. If you were in one of our growth groups, whether in the Sunday school hour this morning, or you came to a growth group on Wednesday night that, that John Wilson's teaching, or you were on uh, the one online growth group that we have going on that, that the Hortons teach. If you were in any of those growth groups, you've already studied this story of, of what the Apostle Paul was like. And the Apostle Paul tells us here that as he set about to, he was set about to persecute the church, but when he was saved, he didn't immediately go and sit down with the other disciples, the apostles, and say, okay, teach me about this gospel. God spoke to him on the road to Damascus, and then the other apostles didn't want anything to do with him. They were afraid of him. Eventually, uh, Barnabas was able to bring him in. But Paul tells us from his testimony here that the first three years, he left Damascus and went out into the desert. Paul spent his time out in the desert alone with the Lord, and the Lord revealed the gospel to him there. But I don't want you to think that Paul was just out there having some kind of weird, crazy visions. Because I want you to understand who Paul was. Paul was a man of God who knew the Old Testament. He had most of the Old Testament memorized. As, as a Pharisee, Paul had exceeded among his contemporaries. He was one of the best of the best of the Pharisees. And so Paul, as he goes out into the desert, I can assure you, and, and there's reason for this that we're going to see later in Galatians, that Paul was not out there just receiving some, some strange vision from God. He was out there digging into the Word of God. Because what you see in Revelation, Paul understands the gospel of Jesus Christ as he sees pictures of it in Sarah and Hagar and Abraham that he's going to talk about later on in Galatians 2, I mean Galatians 3 and Galatians chapter 4. He sees the, the pictures of the gospel as portrayed in, in Adam and in, in the first Adam and then the second Adam as he talks about in Romans. So the apostle Paul came to an understanding of the gospel through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ while he was alone in the desert with God's Word. It wasn't just some, some ethereal thing. It was him alone with his thoughts and the Word of God that he began to understand the truth of the gospel. And then after years out in the, uh, the Arabian desert, he comes back to Damascus and he eventually goes down to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, he meets Peter and he begins to, as he's been preaching the gospel, he understands in the, the, the what he understands from the Old Testament, the gospel, he's, just, he's hearing the stories and they line up. So the apostle Paul tells us that, look, the gospel is not something I made up. The gospel is something that was given to us by God. It it originates with God himself. There is no other religion that can make that claim and, and make it in a way that stands 
scrutiny. The gospel then, as it is revealed throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, the gospel is also then fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you see Paul say in verse 15, God was well pleased, and then in verse 16, to reveal his son in me. The gospel is the story of Jesus. The gospel is the story of what God did through his son to transform us. It originates in the nature of God. It is revealed by God through time as he began to reveal himself to his people. And then it was ultimately made clear through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's gospel. The Lord has given us this promise that's rooted in who he is and in, in his nature. And so Paul argues, look, what I'm teaching y'all is not just another philosophy. It's not just another form of theology. It is the gospel, the truth that originated from God and has come through his son. Second, the gospel, Paul is going to tell us, absolutely transformed his wretched life. The gospel will transform both wretched and wrecked lives. Let me pause there for just a second before I walk through the subpoints that I have here, because it is, it's easy for us to gloss over this. Oh, yeah, Paul persecuted the church, then he got saved, and he was a great missionary. That's easy to gloss over. But hear these words again, and I'm going to read this for those of you that weren't in a growth group this morning, okay? When Stephen was being persecuted, Saul stood there, watched it happen. Not only did he watch it happen, chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. I'm going to read this real slow because I want you to hear this word for word. Verse 3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house dragging off men and women and put them in prison. Saul, standing up for his faith, what he believed to be true about Judaism, his, the traditions of men, he calls it in Galatians chapter 1, was ravaging the church. When I read this over and over this week, it gave me images of SS guards in Germany going house to house, dragging men, women, and children who were Jews out of their homes to be sent to their death in the death camps of Germany. Paul was ravaging, Saul was ravaging the church. Everyone except the apostles was either in prison or scattered. And then when he ran out of people to arrest in Jerusalem, at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, the scripture says he goes to the synagogue and he gets permission from the high priest. He probably went to the temple, went to the high priest, and he got letters giving him permission to go to D Damascus 
engage with the synagogue leaders in Damascus and start dragging people of Damascus to jail. And not just taking them to jail in Damascus, but rounding them up and bringing them back to throw them in prison in Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sure that they were all, he wanted to get them to Jerusalem so they'd all have a fair trial, right? Isn't that what Paul was wanting at that time? He's wanting all of these Christians to get a fair trial. No, they're rounding them up in Jerusalem so that they could deal with them in the harshest way they could. Hear that about this guy. This was not just a guy with a bad idea. Paul was wretched. He had a hatred for Christ and for Christians. And he was doing everything that he could to put an end, to stamp out this movement. That's important for us to get. Because that, that sets the balance. It helps us understand his testimony. When he says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But God intervened. God who loved me. God who cared about me. God who, who placed me in my mother's womb and had a plan for my life. Yes, God, the one whom I was persecuting. The one whom I was trying to destroy his work. God called me by his grace. No matter how wretched we are, we can never be so far gone that we cannot be reached by the grace of God. God is in the business of transforming the lives of wretched people. We need to hear that. That's the gospel. That's God's grace. God will forgive the vilest of sinners who are willing to turn to him and to put our faith and trust in his son. Through the gospel, our sin is forgiven. Very few of us we'll look at ourselves and identify with Apostle Paul. Very few of us have ever tried to kill somebody for being a Christian. None of us have drugged Christians off to prison, I don't think, uh, just for being Christians. But the gospel is not just about transforming wretched lives. The gospel is also about transforming shipwrecked lives. And if it were not for Christ, every single one of us would be a wreck. I was thinking through how to illustrate this, and uh, I thought about just reading the story of the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27 to keep this focused on the Apostle Paul, except that the entire chapter of Acts 27 deals with the shipwreck that Luke was on. It's one of those examples that Luke was on the ship, and so he writes everything in great detail. Some of the rest of Paul's travels... Luke doesn't write in such detail because he wasn't with him. Like I was talking about those we passages earlier. 
But if you, you read the story of the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27, you see the ship as it goes out to sea and then this giant storm comes and, and, and the, the boat, Luke first begins to detail how the ship is just, just, it just has to go with the wind. The wind's blowing so hard, they can't go the direction they want to go. So they just have to kind of, kind of drift and they just have to let the boat go with the wind. They end up way out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, nowhere near where they wanted to be. And, and things finally calm down and then they get turned and, and, and then the winds pick up again and they find themselves headed in at night, 14 days into this. On, on day three, they threw most of their food overboard and they had to throw most of their tackle overboard. They had to get rid of most of their supplies. Day 14, during the night, they finally see what they think is some land out there on the horizon and they begin to check the depths of the water. And, and and so they, they, they realize that they're getting closer and closer to land, but they don't want the ship to get busted up on the shore, so they drop their anchors. And, and, and as they drop anchors, the ship, uh, the, the storm is, is tossing the ship, and it's being beaten and battered by the waves. And as the ship's being beaten and battered, it, it gets up, it gets grounded on, on the, in the shallow water, and the ship starts to come apart. It came apart to the extent that, that those who eventually made it to shore did so on planks and on boards of pieces of the boat that had simply come apart. And I thought that that's a pretty good picture of some of our lives. Some of us are, are, are like boats that are, the, the winds of life are just pushing us from here to there. Sometimes it's, it's stuff that happened in our life that's completely out of our control and, and, and the winds batter us and they push us. It's a loss of a loved one or it's, it's a divorce that wasn't of our choosing or, or whatever it may happen to be and, and things that, that, that push us all around. And, and then we, we get to a place where we see the, the, the storm finally seems to let up and the next thing you know, here we are getting run aground and the waves are just battering our lives. Bad news after bad news after bad news and it just seems like our life can't stay together. It's falling apart if a lot of us, we may not be characterized by wretched lives, but we're characterized by shipwrecked lives. And God is in the, is in the, in the business of transforming shipwrecked lives. He can save everybody on the boat, just like he did in Acts 27. He is in the, he is in the business of saving those who are lost, those who are beaten, those who are battered by the storms, those who seem to have no hope, no future, no help. God is in the business of transforming and saving those lives too. That is the gospel. The gospel will transform and change and bring hope and life to those who are wretched and to those who are shipwrecked. Sometimes our lives end up shipwrecked because we're wretched. Sometimes they end up shipwrecked because we're stupid and we do dumb things. Sometimes our lives end up being a shipwreck, not because of our own doing, but because of what somebody else chose to do. Someone else's sin causes destruction in our lives. Regardless of the cause of the shipwreck, regardless of the cause of the wreckage in your life, it is never beyond the redemption of God's grace. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the good news. We have hope for our sin. We have hope for our lives because of the truth of the gospel. The gospel, Paul notes here, also rules over religion. See, Paul was zealous for his religion, and he was completely wrong. He was zealous for traditions, 
and he was completely wrong. If we let our traditions get in the way of the gospel, we are completely wrong. The gospel is more important than the traditions of men. The gospel is not bound by traditions of men. And traditions, our traditions should never be elevated above the importance of the gospel, certainly in his church. Far too many churches have been shipwrecked because they cared more about their tradition than they cared about the gospel. If we care more about tradition than we care about the gospel, the church needs to close its doors. Because the gospel is what saves, not man's tradition. Paul could have been the greatest Pharisee ever. And by all means, he seemed to be. He was the top. He was the cream of the crop. And yet, he would say, I was the chiefest, the chief of all sinners. I was the greatest among sinners. Because he was placing his Jewish traditions above God's Messiah. We cannot afford to allow our traditions to be elevated above the gospel. Our traditions, here's why. They're traditions of the church cannot save wretched men. The traditions of the church cannot save shipwrecked lives. The gospel can. No man-made theology can save wretched men. The gospel can. God's grace expressed through the gospel is our only hope. And then the law, not just traditions of men, but the law itself has been subjugated to the gospel. It has been defeated by the gospel. We are not called to be held in chains by the law. In fact, Jesus said that when you've been set free by the gospel of grace, the law no longer holds any sway over you. You've been set free by the truth. We are called and beholden to God's marvelous grace. It's not the law or the rules and regulations of Scripture or the church that save you. It is the grace of God expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. And it is only His grace that gives us any hope. The gospel has the power to save. The gospel has the power to transform wrecked and wretched lives. And the gospel alone has that power. The gospel also demands proclamation. Look at Paul's words here. When God, who from my mother's womb set me free or set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. The word that's translated preach there in the, in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, is the word, it, it literally is the word evangelize, euangelo or euangelizo, okay? The word means to declare good news. It comes from the root of um, the, the word angelos, message or messenger. So that word that's translated preach there, Paul literally says, his son was revealed in me so that I could declare the good news. God doesn't save us to sit on a pew. 
When God saved you, he expected you to be in the business of telling others the good news, the gospel. That word is translated gospel in other places when it's used as a noun. That word gospel means good news. The gospel demands proclamation. Paul didn't just, after he was saved, quit killing Christians and try to be a nice guy. That would have been what we call in modern-day vernacular lifestyle evangelism. They would have seen that Paul had changed. They would have seen that Paul was a good guy. But that's not enough. The fact that the gospel had transformed Paul's life demanded that he declare the good news. There was nothing else that made a difference like the gospel did in his life. And it required that he proclaim it. God didn't save us so that we could make ourselves famous. God saved us so that we could make him famous. To tell other people about the the grace of God and the difference that he made in our lives. And then the last thing that I want you to see about the gospel here, we find it in the last few verses. Paul writes these words, After I went to the region of Syria and Sicilia, I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. So Paul's doing all these travels now. Paul had, had come back to Damascus. He had actually taken time and he'd gone down to meet Peter. And that's, I believe, when Barnabas introduced him to Peter. And he met James at that point. But he really didn't get to meet all the other uh, apostles that were at the church in Jerusalem. Paul ends up going back up to Tarsus, where eventually Barnabas finds him. When Barnabas is pastoring at Antioch, he brings Paul over to Antioch. This is 14 years or more after Paul's been saved. Brings Paul over to Antioch to begin to teach at Antioch. And, and Paul and Barnabas are co-pastoring the church at Antioch, the church where believers were first called Christians, a little, little Christ at Antioch. While they were preaching there, the Lord, through the Spirit of God, as they were worshiping, called the church, the whole body, to choose from among themselves a handful of leaders and send them out on this first missionary journey. And so they chose Paul and Barnabas to take the leadership. They took John Mark with them. They prayed over them and then sent them out on what we refer to as the first missionary journey. And that's where all of these churches at Galatia got started. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went to the the Isle of of, uh, Crete and they they established some churches there. They traveled north. John Mark abandoned them uh, there and he went back home. He'd gotten homesick apparently. So Paul and Barnabas then go throughout the churches of southern Galatia, planting churches. They come back and revisit those churches and then they take a ship back, come back to Antioch. So all of this time, Paul had never gone back to Jerusalem. Remember what he'd been doing in Jerusalem? The, the last thing that most of the people in Jerusalem and Judea knew of Paul was when they, he drug them off to jail. I can, I can assure you there were a lot of Christians who were still alive that remembered that. They, they had long memories. If, if, if you had been the guy that came to my house and brought a bunch of soldiers with you and grabbed me and my wife and my children by the nap of the neck and drug us off to prison, I'm not going to forget. And so Paul says, I had not been back to the Judean churches. I was personally unknown to them at that point. They really didn't even know me. But they kept hearing this. They kept hearing something. They kept hearing 
that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy. They kept hearing that news over and over and over and over. They they kept hearing. What happened to this guy? He had never seen him face to face, but they kept hearing the good news. And what did that cause them to do? It caused them to bring glory to God. They glorified God because of the testimony of my life. What they had heard had been happening. Now, this is early in Paul's ministry. He writes the book of Galatians in about 48 AD. He had done the first missionary journey, had been down probably to the Jerusalem Council. There's some question about whether he wrote the book before he went down to the Jerusalem Council, right after he went down to the Jerusalem Council, probably right after. So it's early in his, his journey. So all they, all they had heard, Paul's, Paul hadn't done all this mission work to Corinth and, and to Thessalonica and to Philippi yet. He hadn't been to all of those places. He hadn't been to Rome yet. He planted these churches in Galatia and on the island. But what they heard was not so much the content of the work that he had done, but what they had heard was that he had been transformed. His life had been completely changed by the power of the gospel. And it was evident in what he was doing and what he was saying. Paul's life had been so transformed that it caused those whom he threw in jail to celebrate Jesus, to give glory to God. That's where I want to bring us to a close today. And I want to bring us to a close with this one simple question. Do people glorify God because of what they've seen of the gospel in your life? Has the gospel impacted your life to such an extent that people that know you from your past give glory to God? If not, you're probably failing in one of two areas. Either you're not living up to the gospel or you're not speaking out about the gospel. Our lives should be so transformed by the gospel itself that those who have known us for decades give glory to God because of what they see the gospel doing in our life. And you may say, well, pastor, I'm not somebody who ever persecuted Christians. Why would they see that big of a difference? If if, if you're... If you are walking in a relationship with Christ, they'll see Jesus in you. Do people glorify God because of what they see the gospel has done in your life? If not, let's make that a focus of our prayer. Lord, let me so honor you. Let me so proclaim the gospel in my life and in my words that people glorify you because of it. Not me. I don't need the glory. I don't deserve it. He does. And then second, if you have not responded to the gospel yourself, if you'd say, Pastor, I don't know for certain that if I were were to leave this earth today that I'd have eternal life. I've been dependent upon my traditions. I've been dependent upon my own thoughts, my own philosophy. If you you say, Pastor, I want to know what it means to have eternal life because of what Christ has done for me. We're going to give you a moment 
here in a little bit. Matthew is going to go ahead and come up here, and he's going to lead us in a, in a hymn of response. And if God is moving in your life in such a way that you need to make a public commitment to him, maybe you just need to come pray at the altar and say, Lord, there's nobody glorifying you because of my life. Change me. Do something in me that impacts your kingdom. The gospel, the gospel is what matters. Nothing else. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.